and he is from University of Texas in Austin and currently he is research fellow Institute of Advanced Study in North. He has written so many uh, papers and book and uh, last year he actually published an article on transgender of women in Burma. So you can see that you know he has a massive, massive knowledge. And I am delighted to welcome him. Please join me to welcome uh, I'll talk about 50 minutes. Is that, is that standard? Yeah? OK, good. Um, my title is The Traffic and Hierarchy, Power, the Precedence and Power in Burmese Social Life. This is actually based on the opening chapter of the book I, I have in press, which is called The Traffic and Hierarchy, Masculinity and Its Others in Buddhist Burma, a book about gender, hierarchy, and Buddhism in, among Burmans in Burma, so the ethnic Burmans. To talk about, particularly about hierarchy, which is my focus today, what I, what I want to do is to take three vignettes from from everyday life in Burma, completely ordinary kinds of events. The first one is actually traffic on the roads. The second is what are called Dharma talks, the uh, Mabwe, these are Buddhist sermons held in the evening. And it is the interactions among customers and uh, waiters in Burmese tea shops. And by these three different vignettes, what I want to show you is three different versions, three different ways that hierarchical understandings manifest themselves in Burmese social life. My claim is that if we understand hierarchy, particularly as Louis Dumont encouraged us to understand it, he was writing about South Asia, not Southeast Asia, but if we take Dumont seriously, then a great deal of what we observe in Burma, and I would say for that matter in Southeast Asia, becomes much clearer, much, much more straightforward, much easier to grasp. Just by the way, the first part of my career I worked in Indonesia, in Java and Bali. And so once I started working in Burma, I was interested to see in, in how many ways things felt familiar to me. Mainland versus island Southeast Asia, a Buddhist society as opposed to a Muslim or a Hindu Balinese one, and yet clearly real affinities, real resonances among these different societies. And I would say it's because hierarchical understandings of a particular kind characterize uh, social relations of all three societies. Let me start with traffic. When I first got to um, Rangoon in, for my first long stay, which was 1987-88, the U.S. Embassy had a little guidebook for new, newly arrived Americans in Rangoon. And one thing they pointed out was that pedestrians took insane risks crossing the street in Burma, uh, really to take your breath away. And it was not just reckless young males who would stride across a, tr a street with trucks, buses, everything coming straight at them, but that everybody did. 
little old ladies and mothers with their children and so on and so forth. The, the author of this little guidebook suggested it was because very few Burmans had any experience of driving a vehicle and so they had no idea how long it took to stop a vehicle traveling at speed. It's true, there was very little traffic on the roads in 1987 in Rangoon, and very few people had ever driven a vehicle. But in the intervening years, there's been an enormous, enormous growth in the amount of traffic, and it has in no way altered the way people cross the street in Rangoon or Mandalay. It still looks like suicidal behavior. However, it seems to me, it actually, once you get the hang of it, it all actually, it, to say it works would be to deny the kinds of, uh, the numbers of accidents that take place, but still, before too long, you grasp um, what the principle, uh, the principles at work are. It could be boiled down to say simply that size matters, that the larger and more powerful the vehicle, then the greater precedence uh, you enjoy and you get to act upon so that if you're a truck you expect everyone else to get out of your way and you are not obliged to um, take much, much account of anybody else. And there's a clear uh, there's a clear ordering, there's a kind of ordering of uh, precedence from the largest most powerful vehicles down to uh, cars, jeeps, um, little tiny vehicles, pickup trucks. Uh, Rangoon, in Rangoon, motorcycles are actually not allowed in Rangoon, but in Mandalay, they're all over the place. In all of the cities in Burma, they're all over the place. Uh, bicycles, there are a few bicycles left, not a lot. Um, and, of course, at the very bottom of the whole um, ordered system are pedestrians. There is nothing in Rangoon or Mandalay that uh, really accommodates pedestrians. It is very hard work to be a pedestrian because, if nothing else, because the sidewalks are very high and you're constantly, if there's any kind of break in the sidewalk for a driveway or something, there's a very big step down and a very big step up on the far side. This is because of all the flooding, but it makes life uh, really hard for pedestrians. But it's no one's remit to make life easier for pedestrians because pedestrians are absolutely the bottom. And if you had any standing whatsoever, um, you wouldn't be walking. You would be on some sort of vehicle, if nothing else, a motorcycle, for goodness sake. They're so cheap, they flood in from China. Um, there are very few rearview mirrors in Burma. Why would you use a rearview mirror? If you're ahead of people, you have precedence over them. Therefore, they have, to, they have to watch out for you. You do not have to watch out for them. If you pass a vehicle, by the time you are slightly ahead of them, they no longer exist. They no longer have any import. Uh, once you're a little bit ahead of them, then their job is to look out for you. Your job is not to look out for them. So there's a clear... Uh, there's a clear hierarchy among all uh, participants. It's true, though, that smaller vehicles do have certain kinds of uh, capacities that enable them to take advantage of opportunities 
that larger vehicles don't have. So, for example, if there's a traffic light, there aren't very many in Mandalay, but there are some. If there's a traffic light, then motorcycles and bicycles can come swarming in around um, other vehicles. And then when the light changes and everybody starts up, they have, for a few seconds, precedence. That is to say, they can take advantage of the fact that they could get places where larger vehicles couldn't get. So they, and all drivers at all times, are looking for opportunities. That is um, what being on the road entails. Of course, smaller vehicles lose their, those opportunities. They lose their precedence almost immediately, but that is no reason not to seize any opportunity that comes your way. Pedestrians have the least privilege. They have, for the most part, the fewest opportunities. But they have to be taken into account once they're in motion. Standing by the side of the road, you don't exist. Only once you actually start crossing the road do you have any part in this, any role to play. There are a couple of different options. You can, the high-risk option is to simply set out across the road without, uh, with ma making it clear that you are not paying any attention. Very dangerous. I've seen young men do it. Most other people are not quite so reckless. And so what you do is you start, you, you look at oncoming traffic. You don't look both ways. Looking both ways is a very bad idea because if you look both ways, by the time, the, what you, the direction you looked in first, everything will have changed. And so you, if you look the other way, you've lost out. So you only look one way. And you see if you can enter into some sort of communication with an oncoming vehicle. If it's far enough away, you start out. If it's very close, uh, you probably want to wait. Up to you. You size the situation up and you start up across the street, pausing at whatever point you need to, at as many times as you need to, as you negotiate your way across the street. And of course, once you get to the, the, the edge between traffic in two directions, you certainly have to pause, regroup, consider the traffic coming from the other direction, and uh, keep going. The fact is, as I say, that you don't exist until you start in. Once you do, even a pedestrian, you are involved, and other people have to make some account of the fact that you're there. The negotiation begins. Vehicles pass very close to pedestrians without any qualms. Um, it is um, pretty scary until you get used to it. But an interesting feature of traffic in Burma is that um, there is relatively little, not absolutely none, but there's relatively little road rage. There's no road rage because, as I say, everybody is looking for opportunities and acting on opportunities as they arise. Now, if you see an opportunity to get ahead and you take that opportunity, there are various outcomes. If you get ahead, well, you're right. And nobody can, can experience road rage for your seizing an opportunity and getting away with it. That's fine. And if you realize at a certain point this is probably not a good idea and you fall back, well, you're not going to experience road rage. You just perhaps sensibly, perhaps it's a sign of timidity, but in any case, you yielded and you gave up that opportunity. 
if you persist and you suffer grievous injury, well, you were wrong. But again, just because you got hit or something doesn't entitle you to road rage. It just means that you misjudged the situation. Um, now, all of this may strike you as altogether obvious, and anybody is familiar with this, south of the Loire, perhaps. But I, I want to say that it's worth thinking about what's going on, because, as I say, there's a, there's a hierarchy at work here. But it's hierarchy in the very simplest understanding of the term. It really describes, first and foremost, an order of precedence, um, and probably comes close to the understanding that most native speakers of English have to the word hierarchy. That is to say, a simple system of inequality. And my impression, this may be tr less true in England and France than it is in the U.S., but certainly in the U.S., the word hierarchy has negative connotations. A system of inequality which people assume inequality means oppression, that people higher up uh, oppress, repress, exploit, people lower down in the hierarchy. Um, that is one understanding of the word, but it actually, the hierarchy is quite a bit more interesting than that. And um, what I, inequality is simply that, it's a system of stratification. It's not really uh, a system of hierarchy. And the French sociologist, uh, anthropologist Louis Dumont tried to explain uh, to Westerners that hierarchical understandings are actually much more complicated. And as a matter of fact, I would say that in describing the negotiations that take place among participants on the road in Burma, what I'm trying to get at is that a point that Dumont makes, implicitly if not explicitly, which is that hierarchy is really always a system of relationships and, in fact, a system of exchange. You are actually, you are, you are always engaging in interaction with others and everybody must always be alert. Everybody, nobody can simply assert themselves as though nobody else exists. So it is not a system of individualism. You might want to use the word because each participant is trying to get ahead and pursuing his or her own self-interest, but that pursuit is always being entered uh, uh, into in light of everybody else who is precedent, uh, present. Um, so, um, that is my first example, um, and as I say, it's a very simple-minded version of how hierarchy works. The reason that I belabor the point a bit is because to talk about hierarchy is to, at least in the terms that I want to talk about it, is to go against the grain of a great deal of anthropology and even more cultural studies, at least as practiced in the U.S. for the past 20 or 30 years. After all, what is the celebration of agency in contemporary social science discourse, if not 
a celebration of those people who insist upon asserting themselves and reject out of hand as any normal human would do, at least in the view of many American anthropologists and other social scientists, reject out of hand any notion that they would, uh, that they would subject themselves to others, that they would in any way wish to subordinate themselves. The idea is that, of course, um, everyone is aware of and concerned to express their own dignity their own uh, autonomy, their own agency, and this means that they will um, always try to stand up to power and to resist it. Now, um, I think it's this attitude that makes the work of James Scott so popular. Um, James Scott believes that people in Southeast Asia, when confronted with self-aggrandizing um, powerful individuals, let's call them princes, that a great many Southeast Asians, given half a chance, would of course flee. Um, and often they would flee for the hills. I think James Scott is probably right. Some people do indeed respond to the approach of power, the efforts on the power of some to concentrate power in their own hands, in their own hands and by that means enable themselves to exploit and oppress others. But I think more people, certainly in Southeast Asia, and I would be willing to go beyond Southeast Asia, more people think if there is some concentration of power out there, that the best thing to do is to approach it, not flee it, but on the contrary, get closer to it, and see if you can work out an arrangement with such concentrations of power, an arrangement in which you probably are in a relatively weaker position, and therefore what you want to do, what you want to do is to subordinate yourself. You want to subordinate yourself because by doing so, you wish to enter into a relationship of exchange with some concentration of power. And if you can enter into an exchange relationship with such agents, or princes or whatever, I'll talk more about that in a bit, then the good news is you will benefit. And why would you give up an opportunity to benefit in that way? Why would you flee and escape the kinds of material, affective, spiritual benefits that might at least be available to you should you subordinate yourself? And that brings me to my second example, which are Dharma talks. Um, these have become astonishingly popular in Mandalay, um, other Burman cities. I, I don't really know about Rangoon. I haven't spent a lot of time living in Rangoon. I have the impression, though, that in Rangoon, too, the Dharma talks are very frequent. A Dharma talk is an evening sermon, you could say, an evening lecture by a monk in which he uh, addresses a crowd and how big the crowd is depends on the fame of the particular speaker. Um, often, a speaker will be one in a series of speakers held over a series of days, uh, maybe three days, maybe five days, maybe ten days, maybe two weeks, every single night in a row, some uh, sermon being given. 
um, in, a, in an ever-increasing order of fame and prestige of the monk who's speaking. Um, at this point, the Tirigusiado is, I, I think of him as the Luciano Pavarotti of uh, sermon givers. I mean, he draws a huge crowd. Um, every now and then he would appear in Mandalay during my stay, and if he was giving a sermon, um, whole blocks of streets of downtown Mandalay would be closed off so that the thousands of people who wanted to hear him speak could uh, come and sit on, sit on the ground and listen to him. Um, now, granted, most of the members of the audience are women. Uh, women, maybe with children in tow, the Tirigusiado is so famous that a fair number of men would also come, but the proportion is always overwhelmingly women, not men. And what strikes me about the whole event is what an extravagant display of superordination and subordination takes place. When uh, a monk is about to give a sermon, he will have been uh, fetched from wherever he is in a car, necessarily a car, not uh, that's the only means of transport that befits his dignity, uh, a car, an SUV. Um, he will be brought to the place where the uh, event is to take place. He will then walk along a, a, a narrow um, carpet, I guess you could call it. Um, people on either side will will, uh, with their body language, demonstrate enormous obeisance, uh, perhaps shikoing, perhaps prostrating themselves, not necessarily, but certainly um, holding their hands up in a gesture of respect. He will be um, uh, uh, accompanied by a, a whole entourage of people surrounding him, parasols above his head. This, it's nighttime, so the parasol is only a, a mark of his dignity. It has no practical purpose. He walks to a stage that is festooned with enormous numbers of flowers and other kinds of decorations. He mounts the stage, and on the stage will be an enormous chair, um, many meters high. He may have to actually go up a ladder to, to take a seat on this, uh, on this enormous chair. I myself, I have to say, as an outsider, find the effect faintly ridiculous. It reminds me of um, a television, PG, you know, Pee Wee, Pee Wee Herman, um, who sat in these enormous um, um, uh, stuffed chairs. But, but um, that is not the way. That's a purely foreign association. Um, clearly, the intent is to magnify impressions of his enormous prestige and uh, status. He sits very, very, very tightly wrapped in his robes because that's the most uh, the most prestigious way for a monk to appear is with, I mean, his, his limbs are practically, I mean, he's almost swaddled. There'll be a great many microphones put in front of his face so that his voice can be blasted through speakers um, in all directions. Uh, for the Thirigusiado and a few other very important um, speakers, there will be um, uh, TV monitors all around the place so you, people can watch him even if they're positioned in such a way they can't possibly see him. And then he'll start in, and he'll speak for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. In the villages, I'm told that the Tirigusiado speaks four or five hours because he's aware of the fact that villagers very rarely get a chance to hear uh, uh, 
an extended sermon. So he's going to give them their money's worth. Um, and so what, does, what gets talked about? Well, um, basic Buddhist truths are gone over and over and over. I often ask people why they enjoy going to these um, sermons, and not everybody does, obviously, but women do in great numbers, but also a certain number of men. And I was always surprised by the response. The response is invariably that people go because they learn about Buddhism. That surprised me because I know very little about Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhologist. I'm, I've never really developed any deep learning about Buddhism. But even I learned nothing new at, in these sermons. I might hear a story that I heard, hadn't heard before, but the moral of the story was certainly something I'd heard before, which was very often that there are three baskets in Buddhism, uh, or that there are um, uh, four noble truths. I mean, there are very, very, very basic understandings that anybody would know, even me, and I heard them repeated a great many times. In fact, um, monks would often engage in a, uh, a little rhetorical technique, which was actually familiar to me from Indonesia, not just from Burma, where um, a speaker says something, and then he asks a question uh, expecting the audience to respond, filling in the blanks. And they do fill in the blanks. But this often takes the form of something like venerable auditors. In Buddhism, there are three baskets. And then he may explain what the three baskets are. And then at a certain point he says, venerable auditors, in Buddhism, there are how many baskets? And the answer is... Three. <laughs> And yet, when the answer comes, it isn't three, which is, would be my inclination, it's three, venerable Lord. I mean, there is tremendous enthusiasm and conviction. And um, I mean, this, is a, this is a kind of participation that everybody is clearly very much enjoying. Now, some monks engage in that more fulsomely than others. And there's a variety, obviously, of speaking styles. A monk who was particularly friendly to me, whom, to whom I feel enormous debt, indebtedness because he, um, we had many, many conversations and it was always a pleasure to talk with him. He was quite a popular uh, sermon giver. And I'm sure one reason he was popular was because he would mix in with his um, basic Buddhist truths, uh, in, in funny stories, little jokes, sideswipes at the government, this and that. It was he enjoyed himself, and the audience enjoyed being with him. And it was clear. This is a, this was a, he was, you know, he was an entertaining speaker. I have seen monks who were none of the above. They were strict, they were aloof, they were remote, and they went through Buddhist doctrine on the straight and narrow. Audiences, I think, enjoyed those sermons less, but they didn't leave. You know, <laughs> any public speaker in Burma, you are free to talk all the way through it if you so choose, and you're free to leave at any time, and so on and so forth. But people didn't. People don't leave uh, Dharma sermons. They stay. Now, of course, they're also getting, they're earning merit by attending these events. That's certainly not to be 
um, dismissed. But as I say, I think there is, people take real pleasure in this event. And I think part of the pleasure is, actually lies, in the performance of subordination. The people that respond with such alacrity and such conviction are demonstrating fulsomely, or they are demonstrating their fulsome respect for the monks uh, whom they're listening to. And I think they themselves derive real satisfaction from being able to demonstrate their subordination to the monk. Um, the, this continues through to the end of the sermon, and then as the monk leaves, he, he may actually interact in one respect. Um, after the sermon has ended, wealthy donors who have given uh, big baskets of uh, gifts uh, to him or made large donations toward the event will pose with him for photographs um, and everybody will look at the camera. But other than that, he gets up at the end of the sermon, stands up, he walks back along the carpet, and as when he came, he in no way acknowledges anybody there. So everybody is demonstrating their great respect. He is demonstrating nothing. He is simply proceeding back to the vehicle and is on his way. Um, now, why do people enjoy demonstrating their subordination? I think um, I want to go back to the work of Louis Dumont and say that if I might be allowed to sum up um, a fairly large body of material with a simple tagline, uh, my understanding of Dumont's understanding of hierarchy is that it is a system of social relations based on the idea of mutual interdependence through difference. Difference is crucial. It is because different parties, and fundamentally it's dyadic, so really any two parties, because they bring to any relationship altogether different skills, capacities, talents, inclinations, because they bring those very different um, capacities with them, that they are interested in entering into a relationship with each other. And this will be the basis for a long-term relationship of exchange. Now that could just sound like Durkheim on organic solidarity with the vestigial evolutionism of Durkheim removed, but Dumont adds one very important other point. He says that in any, uh, in any hierarchical relationship, there will not only be some axis of difference, such as gender or lay versus religious or uh, older versus younger or whatever else, there will be that axis of difference, in the, but there will also necessarily be a difference in value. One term will always be validated, will be valued more highly than the other term. So, for example, this is Dumont's own example, in India, male is valued above female. That's just the way it is. However, Dumont points out, that is at the highest order of magnitude, 
and at lower orders of magnitude, values can actually flip. It's just that at lower the whatever context at a lower order of magnitude is encompassed within the higher orders of magnitude. So he says that male trumps female in India, but within the household, of course, women run the place. Everybody knows that. And nobody can test that. So you could say that women actually are valued higher than men in the domestic household, but the household is encompassed, of course, within much larger units, uh, the extended family, the patriline, larger context, social context. So um, overall, if you wanted to generalize, you would say that male is more highly validated um, than female in South Asia. Now, I think all of that is um, uh, interesting and useful. And um, Dumont, by the way, lest he be accused, and he was often accused, of being um, uh, an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy who, who approved of all of this, he says in one sentence, as sort of a, an aside in Homo Hierarchicus, he says, it would be good if difference could be, if, if value could re be removed from difference. But, he notes, that he has seen no evidence of such anywhere. So, you know, it would be, it, it would be nice, but he hasn't come across contexts in which difference does not entail, among other things, a difference in value. Um, now, to this understanding of Dumont, I would add something that I find um, uh, useful and interesting, which is uh, uh, the work of Ben Anderson. I'm thinking not so much of his most famous work, Imagine Communities, where he talks about people coming to have an understanding of, of relations based on similarity. I'm thinking of an early essay he published in 1972 originally called The, the, um, the Javanese Idea of Power, where he makes the point that power comes from above in the view of most people in the world. Granted, Westerners since the 18th century have developed a rather funny idea, which is that power is actually dispersed among each of us little people, and we decide to pool these little bits of power that each of us have and uh, offer it to one person to be our representative that then they can uh, take with them, granted this big pool of power, to higher levels of um, government, but with the understanding that at any moment we may decide to rescind that mandate and remove the power from that person and pull them back down, that's the way that democracy works. Nothing could be farther from the understanding of most people in South Asia, according to Dumont, and I would say according to most people in Southeast Asia. Power comes from above, which means that your job, if you are a little person, is to keep looking up and figuring out where power lies and being very alert for when it might move, because it does move. Um, 
in Javanese shadow plays, it's very dramatically uh, rendered because this ball of light will desa- descend from the top of the screen and just enter some figure, uh, usually a refined knight, not necessarily. Um, and once he gets this, which can be called nur, which I believe is an Arabic loan word, uh, as a, is it a ball of light in Arabic? It's just light. It's just light, okay. Well, in Java, it's a ball of light, also called a wahyu. Which is another Arabic word. Oh, is it really? Oh. Revelation that also descends. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it's, uh, you know, you get the wahyu, you may lose the wahyu. So the point is, you got to, all the rest of us have to, who don't really expect to get a wahyu, we have to, we have to keep checking to make sure we know where the wahyu is and to make sure it stays there. Because whoever has the greatest degree of potency, the greatest degree of spiritual, material, whatever, power, that's the person you want to subordinate yourself to. Of course, since power comes from above, you are going to subordinate yourself. You just want to make sure you subordinate yourself to the right concentration of power. Now, um, in, the, um, in the relations between lay people and, the, and monks in Burma, obviously, there is a major difference, which is between monks and lay people. I mean, it, you know, either you have the spiritual potency that comes with being a monk or you don't. But it is obviously a system of exchange, Lay people offer up material goods, most obviously cooked food. Monks are forbidden to produce or cook food. They do actually cook food, but that's a secret that we don't discuss. So they offer up material goods, and in return they receive from monks uh, a certain amount of ritual um, guidance, a certain amount of um, good advice, and above all, merit. So there's a kind of euphemization of this exchange. What comes down is immaterial in return for what's material that's offered up, but this is obviously an ongoing relationship of exchange in which monks are clearly valued more highly than lay people, but that does not in any way trouble lay people. This is the, the, the lay of the land, as it were. It is in no way uh, demeaning or shaming to enter into this subordinate relationship to uh, one's um, superiors. Um, so, it is primarily, it is most obviously women that engage in this, in these exchange relations with uh, monks. Um, And the benefits, I think, are multiple. That is to say, I I certainly have the impression that women feel like, yes, of course, they obtain uh, merit from this relationship. They also often, it depends on the particular um, individual, of course, but they often um, gain a a real emotional satisfaction out of uh, the relationship they enter into. I would actually go on to say that that relationship between lay people, especially lay women and monks, 
is a particularly clear example of this kind of um, subordinate, superordinate relationship, but, but it's by no means the only one, either in Burma or elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So I mentioned that you want to subordinate yourself to the greatest subordination, uh, sorry, the greatest concentration of power. But concentrations of power take all different kinds of form. Yes, it can be a Buddhist monk, and preferably a powerful Buddhist monk, but it can be a powerful secular leader. It could be an important uh, Burmese military official. It could be some other kind of political figure. It could be a, a Buddha image. It could be a text. It could be a set of words. It could be an amulet. Amulets are not as big a deal in Burma as they are in Thailand, but they have a certain currency in Burma. It could be tattoos. In Java, it could be a saint's shrine. It could be an enormous uh, bunyan tree. These are all concentrations of power that it might well be of interest to you to enter into a relationship, one in which you subordinate yourself, in return for whatever that concentration of power, in whatever way subordinating yourself to that concentration of power might benefit you. And the benefits are many and, and don't really necessarily get separated out into separate kinds. So an outsider might be inclined to say uh, somebody is subordinating him or herself to some big uh, military guy for purely cynical materialist reasons. Maybe, but not necessarily. You if you, you, if you feel yourself in any way vulnerable or weak, you will feel better, you will feel um, buoyed up if you feel protected, if you feel like somebody is really looking out for your interests. This can be a very positive experience. Um, my favorite example of um, how, how curious and to me at first puzzling, but in the long run in its own way, logical um, notion that not only do you want to sub subordinate yourself to a concentration of power, but that you can do so to many different ones, that it's in no way mutually exclusive, each relationship you enter into. Um, my favorite example is either, in fact, not from any of my fieldwork. I did a, a, um, a short dash to Cambodia a couple of years ago, to Siangkor Wat, and in Siam Reap, the city that's where, uh, near Angkor Wat, there was a, a pagoda on the town square where the tour guide took us. And um, there were two Buddha images right next to each other, one raised a little bit higher than the other. And the tour guide explained that these were, in a sense, the mascots of the city of Siam Reap. Um, and that uh, people thought of these two Buddha images as older brother and younger brother. Two Buddha images, older brother and younger brother. Think of a Catholic church with two crucifixes. One's older brother, one's younger brother. I mean, it's, it's really pretty paradoxical from one perspective. But if you think of any Buddha image as being a particular image with a particular history and a particular concentration of power, then, yeah, 
Why not have two Buddha images? One, and of course, if you have two of anything, they have to be ordered hierarchically. There has to be an older and a younger, or a superior and a, and a inferior. And so that's what applies in this particular case. I myself always, at, at least for a long time, found it odd to enter a room or something in, in a pagoda in Burma and find a great many different Buddha images. To me, that rather vitiates the, the power of any one of them. But of course, that's my problem. Um, each of those images has its own concentration of power, and you can choose which one or all of them that you wish to um, um, demonstrate your respect for. Um, all right, so um, I have um, brought up the subject of audiences at Dharma talks dramatizing their subordination because I think it makes them feel good. I think it makes them feel like they are um, entering into a relationship with a concentration of power from which they will obtain benefit. And they, they are um, really satisfied by uh, being able to demonstrate this, this relationship, much of which consists of a demonstration of respect. Um, let me just add one point before I go on to my third vignette. Respect, deference, is a token offered up in the hopes of exchange. In other words, um, if you are relatively weak, relatively, if you have relatively little to bring to a relationship, so you're a, a Buddhist layperson, but you're not a fabulously wealthy Buddhist layperson who can make enormous gifts to the Sangha, um, what do you have to give? The, maybe the one thing you have to give is deference. I, I, this is a variation, of course, on Marx's notion of uh, a worker having nothing to give but his labor, but um, it's, after fashion, the same idea that if nothing else, you give deference. But deference should, at least according to the ideology of hierarchy, deference should bring a return. It should bring the benevolent uh, interest of the recipient of such deference. Of course, there are no sanctions. There's no way to, in, to enforce the exchange. But clearly, the display of deference that matters so much in Burmese society, Javanese society, Balinese society, everywhere that I know in Southeast Asia, the display of deference is an effort at entering into exchange. But that brings me to my third example, which is tea shops. The way that tea shops work in Burma, and I'm told by people that work in South Asia that this is not how they work in South Asia, and it's certainly not how anything works that I know of in Java or Bali. In a tea shop in Burma, you as a customer enter the tea shop, um, you take a seat, and you tell one of a great many boys, usually young boys, uh, what it is you want. So you place an order for tea and or snacks, whatever else. The boy yells full voice across the room to the kitchen um, what, what you've ordered, and then goes off, and a little while later he comes back and puts it down on the table in front of you. And you start in, but at a certain moment, if you, if you develop another want, then any of the other boys, that boy or any other boy, you summon him 
And it's almost always him, although there's a new trend in, for, for um, uh, posher tea shops in Mandalay to start having women, but that's new. Um, so you summon one of these boys with some fairly brusque uh, term of address, such as, hey boy, or a sound that to Westerners sounds like kissing but has no such associations in Burma. It's, it's, it's not rude, it's just brusque, the way that you address these boys. And of course that's the way you address them, because they're, they're people of no consequence whatsoever. They're young, uneducated, usually village boys, so you treat them as such. And you are presumably, I mean, if nothing else, you're rich enough to enter a tea shop. So you have, if only a minimal higher degree, greater degree of status and precedence than the boy. Any one of them, though, will, you can give another order to. Nothing ever gets written down. There's no bill. Um, so any boy can fetch your order for you. And then when you're ready to leave, somebody, maybe one of those boys, maybe somebody somewhat older and um, on closer terms with the owner, will come, look at the plates, dishes, so on, that's on the table, figure out how much you owe, and take your money. In other words, there is no ongoing relationship between the customer and any member of the staff. It is... Um, the customer is in a position of superordinate, but with no binding obligations other than to pay. There's no tipping in a tea shop. How could there be? Because tipping implies a kind of... Uh, tipping is an altogether feudalistic practice, which should, of course, be banned, I say, as an egalitarian Westerner. But uh, tipping is predicated on, on the idea that you feel... Um, in your benevolence, uh, uh, some sort of gratitude toward a subordinate, and you're going to demonstrate your um, special feeling for that person from a position, of course, of superior status by giving them a little extra. Uh, you know, it's condescending and, um, to my mind, quite revolting. But in any case, it's impossible in a tea shop because you have no relationship. And I would say that what this represents is a kind of tiny um, uh, instance of free market exchange adapted to a highly hierarchical relationship, uh, context in which clearly customers are superordinates. They address their subordinates in altogether brusque terms. Their superior status is obvious. But at the same time, they're in no way obligated. There's, and the problem with long-term relations of exchange is precisely that they're entangling. They're a burden. If you're a superordinate in Burma, of course, let me add, you're a superordinate in this relationship, you're a subordinate in that relationship, every dyadic relationship you may, you may be in a different position. You are not always a superordinate. Obviously, you, you couldn't be. But in the context of a tea shop, it's perfectly clear who's a superordinate, who's a subordinate. And as I say, you get to be the subordinate, superordinate without any entangling obligations. That, it seems to me, is the, it, it's the, it's the thin edge of the wedge, I guess, 
but it um, has an obvious appeal. Um, okay, so I've described three different situations in everyday Burmese life, very ordinary everyday Burmese life, in which we see hierarchy at play in rather different ways. And I would... Um, this, these examples may seem to you um, every day to the point of triviality, but I think they give you a little bit of insight into the ways that hierarchical assumptions inform everyday life. Any of you who have spent time in Southeast Asia certainly know that all features of social life are deeply, deeply impregnated with signs of, of relative status. So I could talk about pronouns, I could talk about the, wor the words that you substitute for pronouns, I could talk about kinds of language, I could talk about gestures, about deportment, about where you sit, uh, how you move, on and on and on. All of these things would also be, I think, familiar to the point of um, uh, inanity if I went on about it. I do in my book, I admit, but um, just to drive home the point that thinking about hierarchy really, really does matter if you're going to think about social relations in Southeast Asia. But let me now turn a corner and say that let's go back to traffic for a moment. I said that there's very little road rage, and I think the reason that there's very little road rage is that there's no notion of, ha of the right of way. There's no such thing as the right of way. I think Western, Western ideas of traffic are predicated on the idea of Similar vehicles traveling at similar speed. In the U.S. on a highway, there are minimum as well as maximum speed limits. And if you can't proceed within these parameters, you shouldn't be there. You should be in a different lane or a different, on an altogether different route. Uh, bike lanes, great idea, and finally catching on in the U.S. But the idea that bikes are a different kind of vehicle that should be separate, but like vehicles should be with like vehicles. Um, in the West, um, in Nantes, it's absolutely breathtaking. Um, in England, I think pretty good. In, the, in Texas, not so good, but the idea is there. Pedestrians have the right of way. You yield to pedestrians. And if a pedestrian, fully within his or her rights, starts across a zebra crossing and somebody cuts them off, then the pedestrian, of course, is, in, is outraged because their rights have been compromised. Um, but that's because we think that uh, people have rights. We also think that similarity is a good idea and differences always suspect. So uh, we think that, uh, what does rights mean? Rights means that difference makes no difference. Man, woman, doesn't matter. Your rights are the same. Gay, straight, rights are the same. Old, young, rights are the same. That's a very odd idea in Southeast Asia. It makes no sense whatsoever. As a matter of fact, um, similarity is assumed in Southeast Asia to generate conflict, competition. You want to get ahead. You want to seek precedence. And you especially want to seek precedence when in the presence of somebody similar to yourself. So brothers, the effort is always made to distinguish among brothers by, by birth order. 
That's a hierarchical ordering older versus younger, which implies different pronouns, different ways of addressing someone, different rights, different obligations. It seems to me in Southeast Asia you always want to make sure, you want to maximize difference because that differences are the basis of long-term um, exchange relations. Let me close by pointing out that um, in Indonesian, the way that you say human rights is based on Arabic loanwords, uh, or so I'm given to understand. Um, in Burmese, there is no way actually to say human rights in Burmese, and so the phrase that's pressed into service actually translates human opportunities. Not the same thing. Thank you. <laughs>